1: All right, you guys, you excited? Are you feeling good? All right, you guys, put your hands together. Big round of applause, you guys, for Mike Pearl and Brian Merchant.
0: Hi, everyone. Okay, hello. Hello, hello. Testing. Okay. (laughs) Well... We are here tonight to talk about uh, the future, or approximately what nineteen, seventeen, fifty. What? How many? How many? You're asking me how
1: many years futures. into the future? Oh, Oh, nineteen in futures your, contained in your book. There are nineteen futures. futures in
0: it. Yeah, and these are. Um, well, you know what? I'll let you explain sort of the premise of your book, because it's kind of uh, a unique uh, way to sort of think about the future. And this book is all about sort of gaming out, living in. Um, you know fleeing from smelling the future uh so let's tell us uh, a little bit about like the genesis of this book where the idea came from and why you chose to kind of engage this subject this way um i wanted there to be a book about the
1: future that was um like about plausible scenarios uh, that are written about in such a way that you can um you can sort of like you're not reading fiction about them. You're not just sort of like imagining in a you know, anything goes sort of way. Um, it's not a sci-fi book, strictly speaking. Um, it's more, uh, you know, what are these moments like? What is it? What will it be like to actually live in this terrifying day, amazing day? What you know? What will you smell? What will you feel? Um, it was. It, it was. Uh, it was a book designed sort of for my 15 year old self. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to know. I kind of wanted like little bits of trivia about the the kinds of futures that people talk about that they don't that they talk about thoughtlessly, like the nuclear, like you know, a, a nuclear annihilation or something like that. So I wanted to have um, an, an answer to the kinds of things that we don't that we that we think about as sort of unthinkable things, um, but we don't think we don't we don't tend to. Game them out.
0: So that was the idea. Nineteen of those things, whatever. Right, that is. and for anyone unfamiliar, the the premise is such that the day it finally happens, that we take a topic. Uh, I'd say it's roughly sort of half uh, our scenarios or subjects that we've thought about the day the nuclear bombs fall, when uh, you know antibiotics stop stop working. Um, you know, when we finally ban guns, things that people either daydream about, worry about. We sort of posit that future. Uh, Mike then sort of paints us a speculative sort of uh sort of snippet that's that's fiction mm-hmm. um through a variety of really funny or strange ways um so we live in it for a minute and then you sort of explain how we got there, how we might get there, um you know why we might not get there uh, and again this it, it it runs the gamut, so like reading this book is. It's really fun, for one thing. It's also sort of, uh, you get whiplash, you, go, but, you know, going like, oh, this is what it will look like when the UK's monarchy is finally abolished, and oh, when we interact with aliens for the first time, or oh, a super volcano destroys the United States. Right. Um, so, y- you... It's a lot of
1: topics. It's, it's a lot of topics. It's a lot of topics, which makes it hard to, like, uh, uh, hard, hard to pin down <laughs> In a lot of ways. Like, when people ask, what what's your book about? It's like,
0: okay, here it goes. Yeah. <laughs> you got to streamline that. Yeah. Get that elevator. I have, a, I have a quick answer now. Can we hear it? No. Can we hear it in your radio voice? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. Um, so, well, y- let's talk for a second about how you went about picking those futures. What sort of uh, governed whether or not you would include one topic or another? Because some seem, like, totally out of left field, like the day... Graveyards are totally f- filled up, which ends up being a really fascinating and fun chapter. But you know, n- next to something like, you know, the day that nuclear holocaust happens, which is something that a lot of people have right. worried about. Uh, how, how? What was your process here? Um,
1: the 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 genesis of this as a as a concept was when I wrote an article for Vice called um, "How Scared Should I Be of Pitbulls?" Um, because I was scared of pitbulls. Uh, and so I kind of, like, investigated how scary it is to be attacked by a pit bull, which, don't get me wrong, is pretty scary. Uh,
0: Were you attacked by a pit bull at I was point? attacked
1: by a non-pit bull, um, in, in Hungary. And I've never, I've never seen that breed Was of it do- still a
0: dog? Because non-pit bull technically could refer to Yeah, it was a child. T- no, yeah. Okay, oh, all yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't attacked by a bowl of goulash. No. <laughs> okay, okay. Um,
1: Uh, Yeah, so I was attacked by a dog. I ended up being afraid of pit bulls just because in L.A., large dog kind of equals pit bull. Um, And, uh, you know, what I discovered in the course of investigating whether or not I should be scared of pit bulls was that, um, A, science doesn't know what a pit bull is, which is frustrating. um, So the question is unanswerable, essentially. But, uh, B, that um, (laughs) you're not... Very likely, if you're a healthy adult, to be killed if you're attacked by a dog. <laughs> uh, you can fight it off. Um, it's like it's not necessarily going to be easy to fight off a dog, and you might get hurt. But it's r- super rare for a dog to kill an adult person, um, which doesn't sound that comforting. But I found it very comforting because I kept imagining getting killed, <laughs> uh, and so you know, you know. Making it very literal and and sort of gaming it out in my own head, sort of like it it, it jerked me out of my phobia. And now you know, if I see a pet bull, a pit bull and it seems receptive, I'll pet it. You know, where I wouldn't have before. It doesn't mean I'm not a, a little bit apprehensive. They still nip people on the fingers. They still very much attack other dogs. Pit bulls. Uh, I mean, dogs marketed as pit bulls. Since science doesn't know what a pit bull is, but it is a consumer category. Right. Anyway. So you can see, I can be, I can be kind of pedantic, and, and, and that is, that's kind of what I was trying to do, was to say, you know, there are these things that we talk about in a kind of thoughtless way, in a kind of automatic way, and I like to figure out, like, well, how scary actually is that thing? Um, so when I, was, when I was coming up with uh, what the categories should be that I, that I wrote about in this book, it was very much that. It was like, um, what scares people? What scares people who, wh- what scares me, first and foremost? Um, what do I think about? What are what are days in the future that um, that 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 people do treat that way that aren't apocalypses? The UK chapter is a good example of that. You know, there are people who say like, "Oh, thinking like that or that sort of politics could lead to a republic," and they and when they say that, they mean a republic, a, a totally unthinkable thing that to me would be the end of the world. But it wouldn't be the end of the world, and so that's why I, I wrote about that. So you know that that sort of theme, like. Something that is like literally the end of the world or something that to someone is the end of the world um was, was very much the guiding principle. And then um and then you know on the flip side of that things that I think people think of as as unadulterated goods that I kinda wanted to complicate a little
0: bit. So that was the other category. So sort of those three things. Well, so the thinking about the end of the world is a good segue. Um for a brief reading. I think before we get along too far, uh, I think it'd be useful for everybody to get a sort of a small taste of what this is all about. And I kind of asked Mike to read the um, the... Uh, G- given the air nuclear, quality today... Yeah, the this, nuclear I, apocalypse scenario. I, the,
1: you'll see why I'm, I'm going to read this chapter. Oh, excuse me. Sorry.
0: Just because everybody was having too much fun, too good of a time. I want to bring, bring the level down a little bit. One if, of the biggest the
1: one of the biggest bummers in the entire book. And that's what but that you know, that's why that's why I get paid the I get paid the big bucks to uh bum people out. So, <laughs> so here you go. You're welcome, everybody. All right.
0: I chose this moment right when the car alarm started going out. That's off a that no, that's an air raid siren. Oh it is. Okay. Good. Yeah. All
1: right. All right, here we go. Audio voice on. All right. When the nuke started flying, the International Space Station was the best place to watch the show. As the deranged leaders of all the nuclear powers drew inexorably closer to war, in those closing days of the standoff, the constant dread had become exhausting. When it finally happened, you could almost say it was a relief, almost. After the radio operators back on Earth were evacuated and all the communications went silent, the crew just waited and watched, at first not sure if what they were seeing was forest fires or detonations. Then they caught a nuke going off as they drifted over Astana, Kazakhstan. For a split second, a blinding, white-hot spark turned everything white for hundreds of kilometers in every direction, and then it darkened, giving way to a little umbrella that opened fast, expanded, and then faded. Underneath the umbrella, a tiny little ring of dust rose up and then grew and spread outward starting as a perfect circle, and then turning into a puffy cloud made up of tiny apartments, cars, houses, roads, trains, offices, libraries, bicycles, parks, restaurants, people, museums, dogs, and cats. From the ISS, it was all just a little dot, and then a long chain of smoke, longer and thinner than the forest fires they saw from time to time, drifting lazily into the stratosphere. The crew was simultaneously transfixed and horrified. Prokopyev, whose grandfather was from Astana, was inconsolable. But he wasn't alone for long. For the next 48 hours, as the ISS drifted unaffected by the bloodshed quietly unfolding beneath them, similar little clouds appeared over Seoul, Pyongyang, Tokyo, Honolulu, Los Angeles, Houston, perhaps worst of all for the American astro- astronauts Guilford and Sanchez, Washington DC, London, and on, and on, and then the astronauts all felt nothing. The commander from NASA, who happened to be Canadian, thought his country might have escaped the carnage, but that notion didn't last. At first, no one ate or drank. The Russians quietly inventoried their suicide pills. The Americans, lacking suicide pills, quietly contemplated opening the airlock. They all stared down in disbelief, knowing their families were down there, dead or in agony. But after three days of this, they resumed their routines. Meals on schedule, exercise, and occasionally attempts to contact Houston and Koryalov, all in vain. They lost count of the detonations at some point after 300. And the view was never the same. The fires must have all just burned out of control because the smoke clouds just hung there and then linked up with one another and swallowed most of the planet from sight. The clouds only allowed the crew occasional peaks at the darkened surface, and even then, usually just a glimpse of blackish-blue ocean. After a week, most of the clouds dissipated, but they were replaced by a grayish-brown haze that hung there like a film that enveloped everything. At the horizon, where the crew could sometimes see the ghostly auras of the ionosphere, now they could just see a a line of smog where the sun illuminated a new layer of ash. Then the smoke thinned, and they could make out enough detail to orient themselves again, but the view of Earth from space wasn't beautiful anymore. On day 40, they finally crunched the numbers. The six of them could last about 88 more days, give or take, depending on how toxic the recycled liquids got. Then, slowly, it became a grim series of lifeboat thought experiments. How long would it take you to eat me if I died? How much water could you recover from my corpse if you drained me? It passed the time. No one rationed. Why bother? On day 88 of the countdown, they were all still alive and in good spirits, given the circumstances. They had a final breakfast. And just as they said they would, the two most senior cosmonauts and the commanding officer took their suicide pills and gave the extra pill to the American commander. They all said their goodbyes, closed the curtains of their sleeping quarters, and expired alone. The Soyuz escape vehicle could only carry the remaining three. And it was time for them to try their luck on Earth. Prokopyev, Guilford, and Sanchez all piled in and decided, if possible, that they'd aim for Koryalov. Just, just before the war, Roscosmos had prepped another launch vehicle. It seemed as if maybe their best shot at long-term survival might be to try to launch that and come back to the ISS with supplies. They figured they could survive up here for about a year if they played their cards right and didn't go mad. Unfortunately. With no one down there to retrieve them from the water, they couldn't very well aim for the ocean, and with no line of sight to the Earth's surface and no way to retrieve information from mission control about a safe landing point, it would be all guesswork. After a reasonably smooth reentry, the chute opened like clockwork, and they all finally saw the land, nothing but yellow and brown, rush toward them. Then they collided with it, bouncing at first like a tin can on a fence post. Then they spun, The G-force compressed their guts and drained the blood blood from their brains until they blacked out, which was lucky, because next, they tumbled down a steep embankment, bouncing again, and skidded to a stop in what used to be a forest. Eight hours later, Prokopiev opened his eyes. It was pitch black. Guilford and Sanchez were limp. Prokopiev took off his landing suit and replaced it with his spacewalk suit, which came with two full oxygen tanks. He opened the hatch and emerged in the early evening. He was home in Russia again, but it didn't feel welcoming. He knew from the dirt-colored evening sky and the black ash that hung in the air that this was an alien planet. He opened his helmet, held his breath for a moment, and then sniffed. It burned his throat and lungs and stung his eyes. He snapped his helmet back into place, knowing he might never open it again. Maybe he could breathe that air later when he found a bandana and some water. Maybe he didn't feel like it. On the horizon, Prokopiev could make out a town. Could anyone possibly be there? He laughed a little to himself at the thought of it. In truth, he hoped no one was alive in that town. That wouldn't be living.
0: And that's the intro to that (coughs) chapter. Yeah, and I wanted you to read that one, not because it's just so relentlessly grim, which it is, (laughs) but it does such a good job of sort of painting an overview of the situation um, that you're describing. Uh, grim though it may be, but it's this sort of detailed, informed sort of voice that you're using to sort of lay out the parameters uh, of what you go on to explore in the coming pages, which is then, how does that happen? What are the geopolitics involved in getting to that point? And it does, I think, successfully um, do what you were trying to do, which I believe is to just sort of give sort of a, a robustness, a sort of um, tactile quality to exploring these features. It makes a lot more sense, um, you know, as people to hear these uh, very detailed stories to invest in them and then to try to dive into them. So it's a very unique um, storytelling method. And uh, a- a- and so just let's continue that conversation. And if you could just talk a little bit about. This particular example, um, wherein you're actually kind of op- optimistic that the chances of that particular apocalypse coming to pass happening uh, are, are kind of slim. Um, so yeah. So what's like, the part? The part two of that chapter.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I, I start from there. I start with everybody dies, um, and then and then I try and then I, as I go through, it's like, well, how do you get to? What would it take for like the everybody dies nuclear bomb outcome? It's not like it's not like one nuclear bomb going off means everybody dies um, and it's also not like there aren't enough nuclear bombs on earth to kill everyone we're 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 somewhere in the middle there, so you know you you sort of have to um, f- you, you, we don 't know what the retaliation strategies are we don 't know if one nuclear bomb came there's no way of knowing what's in the sealed envelopes uh we We have very limited information about exactly how many nukes would be involved in a in a regional nuclear war or 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 whatever nuclear war might happen um so i just tried to explain like what what is it like like what is the limited damage that can be done by one nuclear bomb what's a what's a kind of like realistic number of nuclear bombs to use in a large attack or a large retaliation and how crazy would you have to be to just keep hitting that red button and know that you're dooming everybody um, you know, to kind of put yourself, not you know, kind, of put you, kind of put you in the shoes of somebody who's being nuked and to also kind of put you in the shoes of somebody who's deciding to use that strategy to do that sort of um, that mutually assured destruction thing or mutual assured destruction. That we have the concept of mutual assured destruction, but you, you really have to do it you know, in Dr. Love, there's a doomsday device, or the doomsday machine, um, but, you know, there aren't doomsday machines. You have to give the word to launch all of the, all of the nuclear weapons, and, and in, in what circumstances uh, is that sort of really what happens, and is it realistic to assume that somebody would doom us all? You know, right. maybe... But, but and also not necessarily. You
0: know, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's a famous case of the of the Russian. Um, was he a, was he a submarine? But where he. Yeah, saw yeah, yeah. It yeah, was yeah. A he tr- just died like a week ago. Yeah. too, that guy. Yeah. Uh, um, it was a glitch. He saw, the, his instruments were all telling him that the bombs had been launched, and he had a window where protocol dictated that he respond. And yeah. Following protocol
1: would have meant responding, and that would have meant U.S. retaliation, and that would have meant a lot of people would have died. You know, people say that he prevented the end of the world, and yeah. he p- certainly prevented millions of deaths. Uh, yeah. but you know, we don't know if he really. This is what the is maybe most world.
0: useful I found about about the way that you explore these things in the book is because even as you know, a journalist who's written about uh, nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, to some extent, I still fall into that sort of binary where either nuclear war doesn't happen and we're all relatively stable and safe, or it does and literally everything is on fire. Um, so this book is a really good way of sort of gaming out the actual gradations between those two, which <laughs> as you say, it might involve, yeah, somebody gets nuked, but has an arsenal of conventional weapons to go retaliate um, you know, militarily, or, you know, or there's these other deterrents that prevent uh, you know, a, a nuclear counterattack, or you exactly. know, like even a particular uh, nuclear bomb being dropped is awful. But depending on the target, it doesn't necessarily mean a million people die instantly. Right. Um, and again, you repeat this exercise a mind-boggling like 19 times over the course. I was uh, <laughs> I was really surprised at how how in depth this the the book ends up being because. I read the first three chapters and I was like, "Okay, he cannot keep this up." <laughs> and then by <laughs> chapter 19, um, I <laughs> was yeah. surprised to say you did. You know? Yeah,
1: it, my, my 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 writing, my r- reporting and writing style uh, has been called an endurance test. And yeah. yeah, this was 19 <laughs> of those.
0: Yeah, yeah I, well, there's got to be a literary award of some sort out there you know, for that. <laughs> masochism, literary masochism. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get to some of the fun questions too, like. Which... Hey, they're all fun questions. They're all fun questions. Good, yeah. We're having a great time. Um, what, what sort of... Uh, I, I know you, you grade them, the c- scenarios. I don't think there were... The one to five. I don't think there were any ones, because I don't think you bothered to... Yeah, I mean, there there, uh,
1: theoretically, there's, there could be a, a zero. I mean, I don't know how fractions work. There could right. be a zero out of five. Um, Chance of this
0: thing happening. So yeah. which were them off the top of your head? Which were the most likely scenarios you describe in your book to happen? And then we'll do.
1: Most likely would be uh, the day that um, the day that anyone can imitate anyone else. The, the deepfakes chapter, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a done deal. You yeah. know, that's five out of five. It's 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 almost here.
0: Um, right. And the example you use in that one is uh, basically a con artist u- using deepfake technology to. Call somebody, pretend to be their sister in in trouble, and get them to wire money. Get them, right? to, yeah. Get yeah. them to send the bitcoins. Yeah. Right. So this is a future that you're pretty certain is going to come to well, pass. Well, I don't know. Do you think that future is going to come to pass? Yes. Yes, and no. I think, uh, as you raise in the chapter, I, I think it'll whether or not it's a massive problem depends on the sort of um, quality of the tools that are developed to counter them. You know, that can. You know, authenticate of you know video and and what whatnot. So it's kind of an open question as to how disruptive I think it'll ultimately be.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, some kind of comprehensive authentication that that if if you could pull out your phone and record something, and then there'd be like some kind of authentication key on that recording that everybody trusted that yeah. couldn't be faked, yeah. then that would be really nice. But like, it, it, nobody has. It's that's an idea that's out there. Yeah. That nobody has acted on because nobody wants to adopt this sort of like universal video authentication thing yeah. or
0: whatever that would be. Yeah. No, I think personally, I think that the... Seems complicated. Yeah, it does I mean, the guy that I spoke to
1: in the chapter was like, um, you know, look at the telecom companies. Uh, they haven't acted to create an authentication key that allows caller ID to not be faked. Because you can look how easy it is to fake caller ID. Spammers spammers call you from your own number all the time. And it seems like it should be very easy to come up with some kind of authentication system for that, but they're just not motivated to do it. And it looks like we have the same problem with with video.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the problem I see, and I think you you do touch on this too, is that it it just is going to sort of turn into a high-tech sort of bias confirmation mechanism where the stories that people want to be true, they now have sort of some... Evidentiary, you know the ep-
1: the epistemology crisis.
0: Right. Yeah. The, right. The the thing we're where, already seeing that now. Yeah. The yeah. thing where if you uh,
1: if you know uh, if bad faith actors know that there is already enough doubt that people know there are deep fakes out there, then um, all you have to do is say if you know when when a new video comes in and it's real and everybody knows deep fakes are a thing, then they'll just start saying, "Oh, that's a no, deep fake." The senator didn't actually say that,
0: yeah. deepfake. Right, but, it,
1: you know. They just haven't learned that word yet. Right. I and mean, I <laughs> the worst of it will kind of happen just once they learn
0: the word deepfake. <laughs> okay, so that's the most likely thing to happen. What's the least likely? I'm not sure if it's the least likely,
1: but the internet going down is, um, like, the most scary and least... Likely, I think in the book um,
0: there might be one. That just because of the difficulty it would take to sort of actually permanently and severely disrupt the even just for a day.
1: Yeah. yeah, even just for a day, taking out the entire internet would involve you know because it's the internet is so many things. When you when you tweet for a moment there, you're a node on the internet. You are the internet. That's how big and you know all encompassing the internet is every server everywhere is the internet you can't take it all down, but just to make it just just to do enough damage to make it useless for a day would be really hard because you would it, that would involve you know severing cables, knocking out server farms and you know just you you could if you if you you know I kind of game out how you could carefully choose your targets if you had a lot of money and a lot of personnel yeah. and you know, I don't give too much detail that I'm providing a blueprint for somebody to
0: actually do it, but but basically the, it, it's the undersea cables that transmit data. You could feasibly snap a bunch of them, and then you have sort of the DNS centers uh, that you would also have to disable where the security is considered. The name right. server centers, right. yeah. Right. So
1: so that mean that would mean if you if you those are servers that if you knocked them out, then you know you wouldn't then you you could the the websites would still be there the internet would still be up but you if you wanted to go to a website you'd have to enter the IP instead of the name and nobody could do that nobody right. know nobody even knows the IP of google you know <laughs> so if you can't do that then yeah
0: so right okay so there's the the most likely least likely which of the scenarios most upended your expectations between sort of deciding to pursue uh investigating the the scenario and sort of what it ended up being.
1: Okay. Multi this is gonna be a multi part answer, so I'll allow it. So with um that with that chapter, the internet chapter, um I uh everybody like everybody at first thinks that the internet going down means everybody gets like a day off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And, like, and and that's, that's actually, that, turns out, that turned out, when I researched it, to be super naive. I wanted to know just how naive that, w- that was, because um, I was like, oh, well, I, here I am on the, in a coastal city, a media guy, like, of course I don't want to go without the internet, that's scary to me. Um, so I, I went out and I found a long haul trucker based in Alabama, and I was like, hey, how much do you need the internet? And he was like, "Oh, without the internet, I'd be fucked." <laughs> um, he said that he he gets his he gets all of his assignments online. He gets his gas in his truck from uh, an internet-enabled card. He, he all of his if he blows a tire, he the the repairs get uh, the, the the repairs get taken care of via an online system that arranges for them to be done. He was like, "If there was no internet." in a couple hours I'd be stranded on the side of the road. If there's no internet, all the truckers would be stand- stranded on the side of the road and they'd have to dispatch like all of Greyhound just to go around the country picking up truckers. But God knows that Greyhound would have its own problems without the internet. And you know these things just compound each other. It's just like nothing would work. I don't I doubt the point of sale system in this store would work without the internet. Like I half of as far as I could tell about half of point of sale systems work without the internet, but but it's pretty rough. Starbucks doesn't. Uh, if the internet goes down, Starbucks will just give you drinks for free. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, no- nothing works. You can, if, you're, if your job is you mow lawns, then you can still do your job. But, like, raise your hand if you could still do your job without the internet. Could you really, though? Would what, it be? What's your job?
0: She's a teacher. Oh, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's the only good I job. Yeah. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I mentioned that. I, I, I touch on that in the book. When I was a substitute teacher, since they use online, since they like recruit substitutes with an online system, then there wouldn't be substitute teachers. And the front office of your school would be in probably a big mess. Like, the bells wouldn't work. Yeah, there we go. There's always
0: something. still improvise, though. But anyway, I mean, it you, would, the, it would you, do... The bottom a, line is you've got to rewrite the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's no good anymore. Sorry. Uh, so so when
1: I found out so my point in saying all that is just when I found out just how much worse the internet going down was than I thought then I kind of rewrote it as like this is something really scary it was one of the, it was one of the few in the book where where you know writing about it writing about this thing that kind of sounds funny I was like no 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 it's actually really scary it's not that plausible but it's actually really scary. So that, w- that ended up being one of the ones that I really spent a lot of time sort of explaining why it's scary. You know, your, your cell phone calls probably wouldn't work if the, if the entire internet went down. Like,
0: yeah.
1: those aren't ostensibly internet, but they are, anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, That's a good point. And so what did any work in the reverse where you didn't actually feel better about them by gaming them out and, you know, l- feel like they're less risky than...
1: There were a lot that I just didn't write after I started researching them. There's a whole big, giant... Giant, giant pile of those, and then a bunch that I could still write. Um, ones that like ones that just weren't that scary. When, yeah, when or I that you did that them.
0: did up. You thought they'd be scary, and then they weren't.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you my the chapter on the chapter on actually contacting aliens. You know, um, not to spoil it for you, but uh, it's, it's a great chapter. That was one of my favorites.
0: <laughs> just because it also goes through like I didn't realize that there was a whole sort of bureaucratic protocol that, like, yeah. <laughs> if they make alien contact, then it's, like, yeah. a nine-step, like, pro- you have to do this. You have to call, you know, like, you have right. to check in with this. It has to be authenticated. You have to, like, yeah, yeah, it really sets cool. into motion. Now,
1: and, and those are all those are all participants in that program for, for all of right. these SETI institutions. If you discover aliens independently, yeah. like, if you do it with your telescope at home, you don't necessarily have to follow those protocols. And, like, one of the things that's interesting about those protocols is that they are not – They're not enshrined in law in any way, including there not being a protocol or a law that says that you can't say hello back. If the aliens send out a hello in every direction, you you probably shouldn't say, like, hi, we're here. Um... <laughs> but you can. There's no international law that says you can't do that. Um so the 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 guys I was talking to were like, "I'm glad you're writing this chapter because I really would like them to make that law." And I was like, "Oh yeah, maybe someone will think about it then." <laughs> um but it's not that scary because um aliens would probably be, you know, 30,000 uh 30,000 years of of travel with with our current technology it would like be thir- no it would be 30 no it would be 30,000 years of light speed travel excuse me to to reach like the likely distance of uh of where there might be um habitable planets M- you know meaning that if we got if we if we if we decoded something like, "Oh, this is a Fibonacci sequence," that's like, "Oh, there's a pattern of light that's been sending us a Fibonacci sequence for uh, a million years," and oh, we just noticed it, and th- there must be aliens over there. If we discovered that, it'd be like, "Okay, fine, we'll," you know, "they're they're thirty thousand light years away, so you know, it's not like they're coming. They might be dead. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: they might all be dead by now. So, um, you know, it, since since it's this, it would be this sort of like multi generational conversation back and forth." Um, if, if, if we if we do discover aliens, the sort of boring, prosaic – the thing you need to know about that is then we would just know there are aliens.
0: Right. <laughs> you know. Right. So it's not scary or not scary for us one way or the other because it would be like 30,000 years before we would have to meet them. But it yeah. could be – Feasibly scary if thirty thousand years later they decided to vacuum up all of our water or something. Exactly, and yeah. I mean if
1: the if the if the if it was a if what they sent us was something that you could decode in English as like we are coming to drink your blood,
0: <laughs> you know, then we could be like
1: oh this came from you know thirty thousand light years away, we got a long time before they drink our blood, you
0: know. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question before we uh, open it up to the audience, and that's just that there's this, in the epilogue, you sort of talk about some of the motivations for, 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 for writing this book and some of the conclusions, and one that I just, that I liked a lot, that I, that I kind of seized on was this idea that just, like, the future, that writing this book helped sort of teach you that the, the future is worth it. It's just, it's worth gaming this out because it's worth in spite of all the sort of the doom saying, which is extremely sort of trendy right now for good reason, despite all that, you know, like hope is in many ways more interesting not to be sanctimonious, right? but it's just like... A that is kind mode. of the
1: sanctimonious part of the book. It
0: yeah. is, but I want to... So, so how is the future worth it? How is... How... how well, if you don't I? feel like it is,
1: I don't know if I can convince you that it is, <laughs> you know, um, but like, you know, I'm just... What I what I was trying to explain in that epilogue, where I was sort of going through the end of all existence scenarios that we have that exist. So like, so like, Earth won't exist forever. Right. Eventually, it'll be swallowed up by the sun. I have terrible news. Earth will be swallowed up by the sun. Uh, it'll 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 orbit for it'll like it'll its orbital break and it'll close in for like a few months. And the sun will get closer and closer, and then it'll uh, it'll be like a, uh, I compare it to a turd in a toilet, circling the drain, and then and then the sun will just be a tiny bit bigger, and and that's that'll all that's all that'll be left of this. Um, but by the, I mean that's so far in the future that by then we you know we may well have colonized the cosmos, and you you can choose to believe that we are too stupid and we are too, there's too much infighting. Human, humans are such a waste that we would never get our shit together and like travel across the cosmos. You can choose to believe that, like, oh, fine, if you want to believe that that's true. But we're talking way far out. You know, we're talking way, way, way in the future. So, it, you know, it, like, like you can be as pessimistic as you want. It's it's kind of up to you. We You can, at, at this, from where we are right now, you can kind of imagine whatever you want. Like, further out than the Earth not existing anymore, you have the heat death of the universe. <laughs> um, The heat death of the universe is this concept that, you know, like, the math works. We know more or less that there is, you know, there's just no... <laughs> Entropy is increasing. Everything's everything just will get colder until there's no, there's just nothing. Nothing moves anymore. Molecules are essentially not moving anymore. Heat death doesn't mean heat death sounds like everything gets very hot, but it's not. Everything gets very cold in heat death. Now we may not get there. There may be like there may be what's called vacuum decay. You know there may be vacuum decay in five minutes, and then we're blinked out of existence, and nothing happens. Um, What's worse, like we might. You know, we don't know what dark energy is, and and that's another thing that might blink us out of existence because we just discovered it in 1998. You know, our understanding of dark energy is newer than our understanding of Pokemon. So we just don't. There's so little that we actually understand about the universe um, that you can look at something that is just sort of like, oh, I I crunched the numbers on entropy and it says things eventually get very cold. That's our doom you can think of it that way or you can just think about uh you know there's a lot of there's a whole lot of time between now and then to figure stuff out and um and if you choose to believe that we'll all die screaming soon you know i can't help you that's that's a token of faith on your part uh you know there there is not a there is not a for instance global warming horrible it's horrible what's going to happen that's that's baked in that that, that can't be undone Nothing, nothing about it so far it says is guaranteed to kill us all. So the future, I mean, it's, the book's called The Day It Finally Happens. The future is a bunch of days. The future is not an elliptical, the future is not a dreamy fade to black. The future is not just, you know, there's not an ending that we can, that we can really, you know, wrap our, wrap our heads around, that we, that we can really touch. There's not a tangible ending to existence. It's a bunch of events. It's a bunch of days. And if you, if you think to yourself, and this is why I, this is why I said it's the sanctimonious part of the book, mm-hmm. if you imagine good days that you want to happen and you try to make them happen, then maybe they will. And that's all. I mean, that's all I can. That's all I can do for you. You know. So that's 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 me being sanctimonious.
0: Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've, at this point, I think we'll open up the uh, floor to questions if anyone has them. Me too. You know, they would to, to be clear, just interrupt. It, the, the way that this, this is a result of my framing it. it the book is kind of about it, it, the example he uses is how SETI is looking for particular heat signals.
1: I didn't ask yeah. them to draw the little picture of the UFO <laughs> on the cover. They did that on their own. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean you're ta- you're talking about the the re- the the um the recent crop of um. Declassified military videos of of these you know these CFOs, feats, yeah. these feats of acceleration by a- airborne matter that uh, that cannot be explained by anything that we know. I mean, sure. it is it is pretty clear that there's some phenomenon that's been observed that cannot be explained by what we know. But you know, you know, to that I would just say that uh, that. There have always been phenomena on Earth that we, that we haven't yet explained. You know, this is just this is the new this is that's the new one. We there's there is not yet an explanation for what that is. Maybe it's extraterrestrial in origin, but like, you know, I think I think that a lot of um, th- there was a time when I was going to speak to people who had encountered aliens uh, for this chapter, and I and I didn't out of respect for those people because i i kind of had I kind of had i kind of had no way to marry the assumptions of the 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 SETI researchers who are who you know the people like Jody Foster's character in Contact which is are, what I was trying to say earlier yeah.
0: is that like that's sort of like the, the this is where sort of the foundation of the chapter is laid talking to these researchers and the work that they do which is searching for a specific um set of uh, uh you know signals or they're trying to detect something that yeah. yeah I
1: couldn't I couldn't really marry that with with paranormal researchers or or people I mean I guess the short answer is that I do not take it as an article of faith that those recordings are of something that doesn't originate on Earth. Th- th- they are clearly of something that we don't understand as humans yet, but, but it wouldn't have really served my chapter well to just assume that, that, that those recordings are of something from another planet or yeah, another, n- another world.
0: Enough. Does anyone else... Still a possibility. The door's it, I mean,
1: anything's, anything's
0: possible, does, but any, yeah. Does, yeah. It's a lot, of, lot, of, lot on aliens. Yeah, I guess. What was your pitch like to the publisher to write this book? In other words, what was the beginning, the middle, and the end? And did you keep changing that as you were writing
1: it? The beginning, middle, and end? Yeah. Oh okay the ones let's see what was I'm going to consult my table of contents one moment uh let's see um the day humans become immortal was in the original pitch uh the day antibiotics don't work anymore i think was the n- first one in the original pitch uh the day the last fish the last fish in the ocean dies may or may not have been the original pitch the day the us bans guns that was also like top of the list. So somewhere in, somewhere else. Somewhere in, yeah. Uh, so uh, as far as the final list of, as far as the final list of topics, I, I, I mean, well, so did I didn't work it, that out. But how did
0: you pitch it? Like, did you pitch it as? I pitched of- it
1: as a title. It was always called "The Day It Finally Happens." From the moment I thought of the book, the moment I thought of the book was the moment I thought of the title. Um, that's just a little tip for people who want to write non books out there think of
0: yeah i'll second that like i as somebody who's <laughs> pitched non books before myself just like and not not always put the title deeply secondary and kind of like oh this th- this subject is great but having that like killer title it, i mean it shows they the publishers really responded to this yeah, yeah, pitch, yeah. right yeah the publisher right. yeah i got
1: multiple bids yeah it was, yeah it was uh it, it worked well yes in the hat Okay. Um, I, uh, I researched, I did a, I did, no, well, researched, I wrote a chapter on, um, Israel and Palestine finding, uh, peace and I could not make that chapter anything other than, um, it would be an uneasy peace that might not actually be peace. Uh, and it was a long chapter, and it and it took many forms, and it just ended up being something really unsatisfying to read. Um so that was something that I wrote. I wrote a chapter on um the day that uh, the day that the day that anyone can understand any language um that I just I hated it when I wrote it, but I'd love to write it in the second one if there's a second one. Because um, I still think that's a cool idea. It's just like I didn't I like what I wrote. Uh, and uh, the day that um, oh, and then there were a couple of ideas that that everybody wanted me to write that I didn't. The day there's a robot uprising. Um, that's already here, so I'm not ever writing that one. Uh, and uh, and then the other one is the day there's a zombie apocalypse, which I'll write. And then I'll write in the sequel if there's ever a sequel because everybody wants to read that chapter for some reason. It's zero out of five plausibility, <laughs> but I'll write it, sure, uh, since there's so much
0: demand. I'll tell you the one that I was surprised wasn't in there, and that's the day that, we, that global temperatures pass, uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah, well,
1: I mean, stay tuned on okay. global warming yeah, stuff. Yeah.
0: A little appetite water. <laughs> Anyone else have questions?
1: Yeah, please, more questions. Crystal
0: Ball right here is... I mean, yeah, I know knows the knows entire the future. future. <laughs> He's researched the future. You have your shot. There it is. Okay. Um, when you line up all of the 19 kind of conclusions that you come to, the 19 eventualities, is
1: there anything that you kind of learned about us? And uh Yeah. It is, it's, it is always... a f- Like, the thing itself is something to write about and then it is, always, it is always just as interesting to write about how we will overreact to whatever the thing is. Um, and, you know, you just look, through the, look at the history of... Um, the, the antibiotics chapter is a really good example of this. If you look at the history of... Uh, the, especially the recent history of epidemics, it's not like reading a history... I mean, I don't want to say that. Ebola is terrible, and it's a horrible tragedy. And and the reaction to it was it was an underreaction in the case of Ebola. But if you just look at disease outbreaks on the whole in recent history, it's the history of human overreaction. And that was how that was kind of how I framed that chapter, the, the antibiotic chapter in the book. As dangerous as it is to run out of antibiotics, it's just as dangerous how how much we're gonna panic. When there's a when there's a big outbreak of antibiotic-resistant, you know, I used a I used a kind of um, parrot parrot fever that's real in the book. I made it antibiotic-resistant, and I made people
0: absolutely freak out over it because they will, you know. The interesting thing about that one too was that like the overreaction has helped fuel the problem because everybody prescribes too many antibiotics. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, we're, we're yes, I learned that I learned that to a large extent we are our own worst enemy, yes. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. humans are terrible. Yes.
0: All right. Oh you do? I have one more
1: question.
0: Yeah. Um, what about oil? What about when the oil runs out as it were? The oil okay.
1: Uh, that is one of the chapters. There is a chapter yeah. on the day that Saudi Arabia pumps its last barrel of oil. And what I'm positing, in in a way because it's what I hope, um and and I and I choose to believe that this is what's going to happen. Is that the political situation has just made it impossible for there to be a petroleum industry anymore? It's not that we run out of oil. You know, I, there, a, a, a few decades ago, people were paranoid about peak oil, which was something that didn't happen. Um, and you know, would have been it would have been terrible. The economy being based completely on oil, and still is almost completely based on oil. Um, but you know, in, in that chapter, I was trying to write about what it's like for oil-based economies, especially someplace like Saudi Arabia, when it's gone. And it's not good, folks. It's not good. If you're living in Saudi Arabia, you need that oil, and you're not looking forward to the day that your economy's not based on it anymore. It's not going to be a fun day.
0: <laughs> I love the image in that one where they're actually dumping out the oil because the barrels are more valuable without right. the oil in it because right. no one wants oil anymore. Right. Can you uh, imagine? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, well, if that's our last one, does anyone have last shot? Anyone? Okay. Well, I really uh, can't stress enough that this is just such a unique, very fun book to read and I do... Uh, think that you should all purchase it at this bookstore promptly after <laughs> I finish speaking. <laughs> so it really is great. Um, thank and thank you for the questions. Thank you, for Skylight, for having us here. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate yeah. it. Cheers. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.